welcome to the Nevermore podcast. The Never, oh, there we go. Um, the Nevermore podcast is a production of the Three Little Sisters. The Three Little Sisters is an independent publisher focusing on unique and rare titles. This month, coming up in February, we have a lot going on, including with the anticipated releases of the Teutonic Way Magic and the Teutonic Way Religion in individual editions, and we've got a whole bunch of other stuff rolling out really soon. It's good to it's a good time to sign up to our newsletter and find out what we have going on at www. the number three that's the three little sisters. com. Today on the episode we have Xiao Luan Baruby and Sarah Strickland, and we're talking about that very seductress, slinky type woman, the femme fatale. This is actually really going to be an interesting conversation because uh, this uh, subject matter actually took me on a huge spelunking for books. And I read the most amazing book about this uh, subject called Seductress. And in that book, I am uh, actually feel like I've come out on the other side a better woman than I was going in. So that was a very interesting book to read and very enlightening. So we're going to kick off this conversation with what exactly is a femme fatale? So according to the dictionary, uh, a femme fatale is an attractive and seductive woman, especially one who will bring ultimate disaster to a woman who becomes involved with her. That's kind of a leading definition because I don't actually think that's what a femme fatale is. What do you guys think? I don't think so either. <laughs> Neither do I, but it's kind of, it, that's like the base definition you've also got your bunny boiler which is even worse than a femme fatale right i think that definition more applies to bunny boiler the woman who acts vengefully after being spurned by either another woman or a lover or you know like bunny boiler is based off of personality disorder femme fatale is something completely different in my opinion so as I was doing some research for this one, I, I, I came across some very interesting definitions. Um, basically, I, I kind of think it was a combination of all the definitions that I saw. So, yes, you have the seductress that, you know, causes mayhem wherever she goes. But it can also be somebody who uses their authority or their sexuality to gain power or to gain something over somebody. Um, and a very interesting example of this is, um, oh my gosh, now I'm going to lose it now that I'm talking about it. Uh, Annie from um, Misery, from Stephen King's Misery. The nurse. Yeah, you actually make a good point on that. She is kind of a femme fatale. Um, she uses her her nursing skills and her you know her ability to to heal somebody to uh, control Paul Sheldon, which is the other character of the book, um, mm-hmm. the the actual author who has a car accident close to where she lives. Now, she's a huge fan of his book's Misery. The number one fan. <laughs> yes, the number one fan. Now, I mean, when he his last book kills off Misery, that she goes ballistic. And she's not a swearer either, because that would be very unladylike. So, duty poopy is as close <laughs> as she gets, unless she's really ticked off at you. 
And I'm sorry, but um, Kathy Bates does a beautiful, beautiful oh, misery. Amazing. Oh my gosh, she, she's amazing as the main character, Annie. Um, but I mean, when she hobbles him, because he tries to get out of his room and out of the house is just so cringy. It's like, now there's a woman who has all the power over a man, no less, yeah. in those times. So, I, yeah. you know, I can kind of see how, you know, all the definitions that I read of this kind of all blended together. It's, you know, somebody who uses a, a woman, basically, who just uses her authority, her position, her sexuality to be above. And look at another good example is Margaret Thatcher's um, uh, Handmaid's Tale, June. You mean Atwood? Mm-hmm. Atwood, sorry. Thank you. I'm mixing two authors together apparently i've got brain fart syndrome today um but yes handmaid's tale look at june june is a femme fatale not in the traditional sense but she is a femme fatale she uses her power with her other handmaids to control situations to control other people and this is something that you guys are honing into uh, uh, that kind of played out in the book I read. So in the book Seductress, she actually follows the history of women uh, through sexual liberation and the control of a woman's body. And she t- discusses in here about how um, the femme fatale sort of came around close to medieval uh, period. Before that, women uh, were never actually seen as a role of being, quote, powerful, even though they had extreme amounts of equality, surprisingly. Um, but they weren't considered to be, like, quote, in power because they almost did this very quiet feminism where it was, we'll be feminist through a vehicle, um, i.e. a man. So mm-hmm. we'll put we'll put them in the lead. But, you know, as the Greeks say, like, the um, the man may be the head of the house, but the woman is the neck. Mm-hmm. Like, so she was still controlling things, but... In a way that was subtle. Uh, and, and believe me, I understand. I am glossing over history redonkulously in saying this. But uh, it, it, from most most degree, it, there were some periods of time where women were doing this almost silent, silent control. Uh, and then it became very aware um, by men that if women have the ability to control the body, reproduction, and children, that that would be a huge asset that they could uh, you know, affect culture, affect society, affect lineage. And so it became a mission to reduce them to a base form. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start getting this change of uh, basically a woman being seen as being sexually liberated, allowed to do whatever she wanted with her body to, oh, she's controlling and a cat. And, it, and these slur words started developing around the medieval period when it came to women's sexuality. Um, and that's really where she started to change. And you can apparently see this, uh, as the book Seductress points out, through mythology. Because you have things like the Madonna, which is the pure virgin snow uh, of woman. And then you have myths like Persephone who is not the virgin snow <laughs> woman. So you you have these like parallel myths going on, but then Persephone changed in the medieval period and it started being degraded so that Persephone was seen as more like a slut. And so her, the, it was definitely a thing to women of like, you don't want to be Persephone. You want to be the Madonna. And 
it, it, that sort of got played out through stories. Well, look at Freya. I mean, yeah, exactly. You know, it, Good it, example. It, <laughs> anymore, she's just kind of the hoe of Norse mythology. But it's like there's so much power there, and so much that has been lost because she was just downgraded to, you know, Norse mythology slut. Let's take a historical person too, uh, one that's actually going to come up in the bone jar, uh, Queen Jocasta. These days they use that term as a woman who uses her son as a suedo husband and re- hmm. tries to replace the wife and it's called Jocasta behavior. Queen Jocasta um, is a historical Greek person who was thought to or you know to sleep with her son or to murder her son that was the the tale of that of queen jocasta and that she used her son to replace a husband and nowadays that's the term for a really crappy mother-in-law who drives the wife nuts right (laughs) but i think you can kind of see that like um the way the switch in the mind from woman being something that was desired, equal, precious, cared for, and then changed uh, when medieval society started seeing them as a threat. Uh, And mostly they were a threat because women did have a significant uh, broad spectrum of power, particularly in one aspect of life, and that was childbirth. And uh, there's an amazing documentary uh, called When God Was a Girl. And the same archaeologist did a series on how women lost power. And the number one place it started was in the birth room. So men wanted to be a part of the birthing uh, process, especially when it came to understanding it. And priests wanted to be there. So I know that sounds bizarre. Like, why would they want to be there? Because they didn't understand women's conception or birth. And so they wanted to understand it from a more scientific point of view. But in order to get in there, they would have had to break social norms because men were not supposed to be in this room. This was a room for women. So it, it they started weaseling their way in there by starting with uh, monks coming in to bless the baby when the baby was born. And then it evolved from that to taking over the place of the midwife. So it was a very slow transition of removing uh, the any amount of privacy that a woman had to her own body, her own right, and slowly taking it away. And it's a really interesting uh, documentary series for anybody who wants to look at it because it actually chronicles how uh, women got changed from this very loving, caring, almost goddess figure to something that was that needed to be controlled. And you can kind of play this exactly into the conversation that we're having today because this form of the femme fatale was an attempt after World War II to do the exact same thing. We were going to once again attack women where they were the most vulnerable and that was in our freedom. And it's a very interesting thing when you look at it. Um, The research I did as well that when I was like looking at this episode was finding out how much had changed for women's lives over countless decades, but particularly when it came to the war. So initially, like you guys were saying, femme fatale didn't always mean something negative. Uh, In film noir, she was actually seen as being something powerful, 
Uh, she was the freewheeling woman who didn't need anyone in her life to be who she was. And there's a lot of film examples of, of this type of woman, but it's basically the woman who has freedom, uh, like the character in Vertigo uh, is a good example. She was unattached, unmarried, and doing what she wanted. And that was how a femme fatale was viewed. Then around the war, she changed. And the reason for this apparently has a lot to do with when women went to work during the war, um, and it was sold as being this like, oh, look, boys, they're here doing their thing for you. When the men came back, they were just forced out. Like, go back home. You're, we're done with you. And that caused such a rage in women that filmmakers actually started portraying women in these more psychotic, vampire-ish ways because of what was going on in society. Um, they saw women as a threat. Because here they, here they were going back to work, not being in the home. Like, it was, it was completely shocking to people that you weren't going to have Leave It to Beaver. You were going to have, you know, a much more freewheeling woman who was out there doing her own thing. And that terrified people. Because if she's not at home, like, what kind of family life are you going to possibly have? Like, it's just impossible yeah, to not the have mom there. The, the destruction of, you know, the American home where it was... Yes, exactly. You know, <laughs> mommy stays at home all day baking cookies and has the martini waiting for her husband in it. <laughs> Right, and then around uh, post-war, the women started changing in film and in novels as well, and it started being more like uh, beds started getting pushed together. We were seeing more couple engagement. Uh, women had work, like the Mary Tyler Moore show was like the biggest one for showing that like women were back in the workforce, and this was only 1960. Uh, so it, it evolved through that, and I mean, uh, I'm one of the kids who grew up, I mean, aging myself here, and I'm the child of the 90s. I was born in 76. And I remember when my mom went back to work. I remember the whole 80s where women had to leave the home because of the economy. And, uh, you know, I think without those women out there working, you wouldn't have been able to afford <laughs> basically to live. But you were also seeing this thing that was happening in film that was making women more like devils, like she-devil, uh, Sharon Stone, for example, was a good one. Um, more like these women who were like, oh, see, see what happens when you like give them freedom? They turn into psycho killers who are going to like poison you and try to kill you. And it is, it's a very warped view of like trying to control women by basically forming how we see them. Well, Sharon Stone cinched the bunny boiler femme fatale um, definition with basic instinct. That was just, that was a nouveau kind of way of looking at women. Um, she was the the man killer, the man eater. You know, she didn't give a rat's butt or hiney. It's what she wanted and she was going to get it. And it's weird that, you know, that kind of, it. it's been a while since I've seen that movie, so I don't, I don't remember exactly what her context was, but one of the things that's fascinating is that kind of strength in female characters where, you know, now we're like, oh, yes, by all means, give us a strong female character who knows what she wants. When that movie came out, that was pretty, you know, you didn't have very many strong female characters. And even if she was portrayed as being somewhat crazy, 
there was still that underlying theme of here's a strong woman. And nowadays, you actually have men in those crazy roles yeah. today in the movies. Look at um, Idris Elba's... Um, I can't remember the name of the movie, though. Uh, it's where he comes out of jail and he meets up with this strong female uh, woman who has a baby and her her husband's gone for the weekend. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but he ends up being the crazy, right? And she beats him... At his own game with her strong female role. So now the the tides are starting to turn where men look like the bunny boilers. And then take Lucifer's Lucifer Netflix's Lucifer. I mean, there's your Eve connection that you're probably going to reference in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, where she's the femme fatale and Lucifer, literally the devil, is at her beck and call. And he's under her thumb. Yeah, and it, it was a good thing in the research that Sarah brought up, Eve, because this is a perfect example of what I'm trying to say. Um, and she really does relate to Freya as well. So th- this can be viewed in those two particular lenses because they are the clearest mythology that we have that proves um, what we're saying about the transition of women is actually a thing. So uh, in, in certain aspects of the Bible, Eve is actually written with a full identity. Okay, she has her own life. And... She wasn't written to be this quite, like, quote, evil. But uh, in later versions of her, she's relegated to only being, like, a um, sort of like an abstract. And and yeah. sort of, like, to his side. Like, again, it's, it's shifting the narrative to, like, you don't have humanity. Like, you can't even be seen as a human. We're going to relegate you. You're an accessory. <laughs> You're an accessory. And well, it's the bringer of evil and sin because the devil made her do it. Yeah, right. But if you really actually look at the mythology um, and where Eve transitioned, it's it's interesting that initially that's not how it really went down, and and it's the same that happens with Freya, when a wo- when a woman shows her sexuality, her identity, it the immediate attempt is okay. Let's quash that because we don't want that level of influence here. Um, and, and Sarah brought up Freya, and I think it's. Again, a perfect example. Freya was never, ever written to be this very slutty, hoary type god. She actually had an extreme amount of power, uh, to the point where she was the only expert that could teach Odin a particular magical path. But at some point in the history of women, and we don't know exactly when, uh, a myth was spun about her where she uh, goes and, and sleeps with these dwarves. This is where Snow White comes from. It's in these sleeping with these lower forms that suddenly Freya traces this transition from being this very powerful god to Odin looking at her and saying, you are nothing more than the the she who is going to create conflict and war. You are disgusting and debased. And he is really vicious to her. And the myth goes, like, he called her names. Mm -hmm. He, He basically defamed her and ripped her apart and was like, you're disgusting now. And this transition just shows like how a woman can't be free to do whatever she wants. She's still constricted by the people around her who define her. And so it was a way uh, at the time that this myth was written to control women's behavior because suddenly they didn't want to be Freya anymore. Like Freya was invoked at every wedding, at every birth. She was essential for women's life. But when she was transitioned, suddenly that goddess got replaced with a 
And I, I mean, I love this goddess too, don't get me wrong. But it was replaced with Frigga, more like the, the mother, the obedient wife, mm-hmm. the one who's by Odin's side, who looks left and right while he's having affairs. Like, and even she, she is, is basically taken down to just the housewife. Exactly, because she had a lot of power before. Uh, like, it actually says in one of the myths that she comes from lineage that was there prior to the gods. Like it says, she's the daughter of a god that they've forgotten sort of the name of. But basically mm-hmm. in the myth, it talks about how um, while the Aesir were building the nine worlds, that Frega and her family looked on. So that implies that she was there before the gods. And that makes her very old and ancient and much more powerful than they were. But when at the minute she's married to Odin, it she diminishes all of her past and she becomes this like more housewife. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is where you can see like mythologically uh, and societally, the idea of controlling women to force them into these archetypes is where you get this change in how the femme fatale was sort of like presented to people. And I think it's sort of circling around the issue of like uh, the concept of archetypes in film and literature, which we're kind of touching on around the edges here, but there is different kinds of women. Like, for example, I think you guys would agree, would agree like there's like the quote virgin. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have that archetype. There's the dumb blonde. Uh, uh, there's the abstract, uh, more like women in film and books that are there, but sort of not really there at all or irrelevant to the plot. And then you have more like, uh, the ones that are the strong leads and then the ones that are considered to be the, like the psychopaths. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think there's much other than that. <laughs> like I think women are pigeonholed. Oh, maybe the mother, the mother is another like really common trope that you kind of see in film. Um, but she's sort of like either the mother that's like Martha Stewart level or like, doesn't have it all like together. Like mommy dearest. <laughs> oh yeah. Or, or yeah. That. Like, oh, and then you've got the betweeners so like Dolores Claiborne. Again, another yeah. Kathy Bates character in the movies. She's fantastic oh, as Claiborne. And you've got the the archetype like her who's right straight down the middle, kind of half, kind of crazy and half not. But I she's know, crazy for she a good fall, reason. I think she could fall into the mommy dearest trope though because she's portrayed as being somewhat negligent yes at yes. least it, as as her daughter views it she she didn't respond to certain to situations yeah. yes yeah. well the the story is in case nobody knows is that uh, Dolores Claiborne is a maid for a f- really rich family first and foremost that's actually pretty um, emphasized that mm-hmm. she is a servant, right? And it's also emphasized that she is the the wife of this man. She is that wifely trope too. You know, I'm just a wife. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to do, right? And the father ends up abusing the daughter, uh, and she finds out, and she finally snaps, and then becomes the what Sarah's describing and, and literally murders her own husband mm-hmm. and hides it. And then it goes around that story on how those two women deal with that issue. Yeah. It, it was brought up in this article that uh, Sarah shared that we would definitely post. Cause it's really, really good. Actually. I'm, <laughs> I'm like reading it as we're talking, but uh, it mentions on page 18 here that basically um, 
the femme fatale is kind of indicating that men have this extreme fear of women's sexuality. For example, it says here that it is indeed true that femme fatales illustrate such fears of female sexuality, especially female sexuality, being defined as separate from the controls of a male-dominated society. While earlier femmes do not necessarily depict bi or homosexuality, their open sexuality would certainly be considered, quote, queer. So again, this is a fear um, that plays into why femme fatales are written the way they are, because if a man cannot or feels like he cannot satisfy, quote, a woman, and that she can get that gratification from somewhere else, he takes that to a very negative place. He doesn't quite understand why a woman doesn't need necessarily a man <laughs> to have her desires fulfilled. It's, it's almost like the two sexes do have never had a full-on conversation explaining that if we choose to be with a man, it's a choice. Mm -hmm. And that we understand that we can be fulfilled with or without them, but we choose them because of our own reasons. It has nothing really to do with sexual satisfaction for most of, like, yes, that's a nice perk of being a woman, but the fact is we can live in a relationship with a man that we are not sexually satisfied with. Mm -hmm. Women can do that. Men can't. We can, because we look at it from a much different lens. Are they a good caregiver? Do they love us? Do they support us? Do they protect us? We, we look at through these archetypes through a much, much different lens. And I think that's the difference is that the other gender, and I, I, I really feel bad because I feel like I'm all I'm doing is man bashing, and that's not true. It's not how I feel about men at large. But I feel that there's a subset of men that kind of view us through this very sexualized lens and don't see that there's other reasons that you would want to be with us for the same thing I'm just saying. Women can be protective. They can care for your children. They can care for you. And there doesn't always have to be a sexual element to it. There can be relationships formed on no sex at all. And, and they are completely healthy relationships that are entered into willingly. And I think one thing I came across while I was researching this topic is that what I said about the men bashing is true. We have to, as women, be very careful that we're not bashing the allies that we have in the male community. I, like, I don't believe that every man is evil or bad or that they did all this on purpose. I feel that women do pose a legitimate threat. We could be something greater than we are and we can rise to a level that's above them, but we choose not to because we're fine with being equal. And I think true feminism is that desire. And I really think that the whole negative stereotype of like these feminazi type things is not what real feminism is. Real feminism is not about being a femme fatale. It's about lifting those up around us who are beneath us. And I don't mean beneath us in a negative way. I mean that are the disenfranchised. Mm -hmm. And that includes men. And that includes men who are abused like we are. That includes men who have been sexually assaulted like we have been. We need those allies with us so that they can also push the broader culture and change the laws and the society to reflect a more pro version of women that is not so relegated to this like heap of mess that we have right now so i think it's really important to maintain a level of uh in ourselves as women to understand that we have that being a true feminist means that we want equality for everyone that includes men that includes transgenders that includes queer that includes gays we have to include everyone 
Mm-hmm. And that's what equality means. And well, uh, for me, yeah. I'm not actually a feminist. Uh, true feminism is dead. Um, for <laughs> me, I'm a humanist. Everyone's equal. Doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what's between your legs. What isn't between your legs. What might be between your legs after reassignment surgery. It, everyone should be equal. Everyone has a say. So I'm a humanist. Mm-hmm. Plain and simple. I also want to point out because I know. I mean, you know, this particular trope kind of brings about a lot of really heavy connotations, just because of the way that these women are written but you know i also want to touch on the fact that these characters can also be fun you know so you know it there don't always have to be you can enjoy these characters without getting into the political aspects of it but i just think it's fun to know the roots of it yeah i, I agree with you like i think you can take this too far and like Again, like I do feel guilty for what sounds like male matching, and I'm certainly not. Uh, I am a feminist, 100%. I believe that uh, women do have a right to have our own personhood. But I also want that to be equal throughout everyone. So Mm -hmm. I guess I'm a a humanist-feminist mix. Uh, I'm definitely not a radical feminist, and I don't believe all men should die or anything. Uh, I, or that I, all women are breeders. <laughs> or that all women are breeders. Them. Like I just want to be able to live my life and my choices and do what I want to do without feeling like what I'm doing is uh, somehow societally weird. And uh, that's all I want. And I think it's fair for us to ask, uh, you know, those who are in power, who are majority men. I'm sorry that we need that we need allies because it, the fact is we're still going to need men around to help us win the battles that we need to win. You can't just discard an entire portion of society because we're angry. And I think Sarah brings up a good point. The femme fatale kind of brings a rage in women that we have to we have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Like it, this isn't personal. Some of it is, but some of it isn't. We, ha- we can't look through history through this lens of like, oh, well, it isn't like that now. Right. And the reason why it isn't like that now is because women paved the way for this uh, to change. Like, for example, I learned last night on Drunk History that Eleanor Roosevelt actually fought for women's rights. I didn't know that. Okay. So the fact is women have been always fighting for women's rights, uh, but they bring in allies uh, that are unlikely allies into that conversation, forcing a narrative to be put out there in general society that helps bring about change. And you can't do that by alienating people. So it's important to understand, like when you look at the femme fatale and the history of it, that there, of course, reasons were put out there for like, oh, we're going to change women because we're trying to do X, Y, or Z. But we can't look through that historical lens and then beat up everybody around us because like, well, in the past, you used to make us sound like, you know, it doesn't matter what they did in the past. Now we have archetypes that we can look at that are much more positive and we can look at films and television and stuff and see women that are much more midway or uh, at least more central to stories. Like, for example, the new um, What Men Want. I actually thought it was really clever to see a woman uh, in a power role. She was going out there, getting her career, doing what she wanted to do. But she realized in retrospect that she could not do that by dis respecting people around her and so she was she understood that she couldn't treat people uh in a way that she didn't want herself to be treated 
And I, I think that's just the, the, le- the message here is like, don't treat others the way you, <laughs> you don't want to be treated. Mm-hmm. And look at the femme fatale as more like, um, it was a push towards changing women in a way that doesn't match how we are now, but it certainly didn't match how they were then. And I think we make the mistake of thinking like filmmakers don't like women or something. But when you look at films prior to the 60s, women actually had a much different roles in film. And so it was only a very short period of time, mostly films in the, I would say roughly around the 80s, where you started getting more like the dumbed down version of women or the more psycho women. But now you have films that have women as the lead, stories that actually are very important for women that lift up uh, women's history. For example, like, uh, what was that one? Hidden Figures, where you learned about uh, the African-American women who helped build NASA. So we're, we're getting back to a place that equally is showing male history and female history in a much more sentient way that is respecting both genders and lifting them up to a place that can be uh, maybe like a neutral place we can start and understand that both histories have had their problems. And I also think it's time maybe for a more growth uh, towards, you know, accepting then also the addition of trans women into this culture so that we can see trans women as a lead. That would be really nice to see more of them represented in film. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, like the Orange is the New Black. It'd be nice to see more of that. Um I'd like to see more trans women uh, play play more roles. It would be great to see that representation out there. So I, I think that's what, you know, when you're researching this topic, it does kind of touch on things that are painful and, and also makes you aware of, like, how history was. But it also, as a writer, is a good opportunity because right now there's an open void where you could write a positive femme fatale, put it back to the way it was, Uh, drawing from the 1950s and give us more women who balance being wanting that power but also willing to share that power that's what i think i don't know uh it's just it's a really hard topic to to touch on without feeling like you're bashing everyone around you but (laughs) but good examples like today if uh, anybody's looking to reach out like where could i read good ones to help me like base a character around. Um, I would say Gone Girl is a really good film to kind of base um, a new femme fatale type woman out there uh, where she shifts from being like a nurturer to more like a killer. Uh, I thought it was a really good film and uh, didn't make me feel like they were bashing her as a woman. Uh, Just giving... um, it was allowing women to have a veneer of a serial killer. And I really appreciated that uh, when it came to that film. Uh, there's a lot other too, that you can kind of look at in terms of like uh, women that have done really well to give us a new aspect of it. And a lot of people are saying um, to look at Emma Watson when she did the circle. I uh, agree. She did a really good job of again, showing us uh, a woman's rise to the top, but in a very, I would say in in a very equal way, uh, but also revealing some very hard truths in the film. So there are some good examples now to like to kind of throw out there as like good good things you can sort of base, you know, maybe some characters on. Well, there's also look at uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and Halle Berry as Catwoman, one yeah. of the most epic femme fatale kind of uh, character 
they go from these meek, mild, you know, tiny little mousy women to power, yeah. powerful, powerful, amazing women who just say, you know what, I've had enough. Now it's my turn. Yep. Yep, even the transformation of the new book coming out, or the notebook, the, the movie Birds of Prey, where we see Harley Quinn and, like, it's a, actually a completely feminine crew of, like, <laughs> uh, basically crazy women who are running around yeah. killing everybody. <laughs> um, but I like the fact that we're seeing more uh, superheroes that are focusing on um, telling a story that's not sexist, that is, you know, we're not just looking at the hot woman flying around in a cape, like, it, it gets kind of old. Mm-hmm. And so I think women are just looking for more representation of more accurate things. Um, even though like a lot of people diss on Harley Quinn and her weird romance with the Joker, I think you're missing the I'm point here. <laughs> I, I know, but I, I, I honestly think that people are missing what the real point of, of that very toxic relationship is, is it, it's a representation of what it is like to live in a, in a world where you are being abused. And I think for people that have had, relationships uh that are very similar to harley and joker appreciate the fact that sometimes you cloak yourself in becoming like them in order to survive and so i i kind of see it in a different lens for me but i still like harley quinn as a character i don't know i think i'm more against the the people who romanticize the relationship of the Joker and Harley Quinn because it's like no yeah, you, you don't understand do that. <laughs> no that's, that's domestic right. violence being romanticized yeah it's like you don't understand right they love each other through this weird toxic lens like you're forgetting mm-hmm. the toxic part yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. other know, characters that, yeah. that you could like kind of lean on from even comic books because I know a lot of people are into the um, Marvel universe right now and DC you've got your Black Widow Jean Grey yep. you've got She-Hulk Wanda Maxoff um, you've got Carol Danvers uh, these are all uh, Marvel Susan and Storm, Emma Frost, you know, you've got all these really amazing female, strong, femme fatale characters, even Rogue, Rogue who steals the powers of others, right? Um, and it's, it's amazing how many we actually have for that archetype. Yeah, I think women are getting like a new shake at, at reforming the femme fatale into something a little bit more positive. That's not so much like a grieving in the males around her, but more taking her power in a way that's um, more natural and, and not so aggressive. Like there, And there are a lot of men out there that are actually helping them do that. Right. Like a lot of these, these characters are built by men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's nice to see, like, women filmmakers because we haven't seen a lot of those. And I, I'm really appreciating the fact that we're having a lot more uh, women filmmakers, women actors, women film studios. It's good to see that women are realizing that our voice has been somewhat suppressed through film and literature and culture. And so trying to regain that in a more positive way is is something that I really feel is a good thing to do. Um it, and, and then and, we have we have men directors like George Clooney and Matt Damon, the actor, who turn around and say, you know what, I'm sorry for what happened to my female co-counterparts and co-workers, and I don't agree with what yeah. Weinstein did. I have my full support. I'm there with the Me Too with you. Right, and that, that's what I mean. Like, I, I think 
like I ha- I don't really want to rehash that whole political thing, but the Me Too thing, and, and it's more than a thing. I think all of us have had a Me Too moment, um, or something has happened to us. Male or, or female, know. Yeah, yeah, males not, have it yeah. too. But I think without this is I'm really feeling I'm going to step on a lot of toes, but that's fine. I really think that that movement would not have the weight it had if it wasn't for a community of both African-American women, trans women, and men that came out and said, no, it was us too. And I think it just took the the amount of people that came out uh, really helped lift up the voices of uh, a dominant class of women who were speaking out. Yeah, and because it took that to make sure that the, you know, the majority actually was heard because the minority said, me too. Right, exactly. And that's, that's what my point is. Like, when researching the femme fatale, it was actually really hard for me to grapple with the fact that, like, I'm not trying to bash other people around me and I'm not trying to take back my power aggressively. Because a lot of it, when you read it, makes you really angry when you understand that women's rights have been suppressed on purpose. Okay, but... When you look at it through a historical lens from today, you realize that, like, yeah, but suffragettes wouldn't have had the like their rights back if it wasn't for husbands going with them mm-hmm. and saying, yes, me too. I'm with her. I want votes for women. And the same in the 60s and 70s. Like, a lot of the, I read these beautiful letters from women who were part of the bomb girl movement, and they wrote letters about their male supervisors. Some of these letters are so loving and kind. And they were like, you know, he always was there trying to make sure we got water and breaks. And if our kids were sick, he was there. If it wasn't for these male allies, we wouldn't have been able to maintain our our power here. And we would have just been relegated to like a temporary thing. But those men fought for women to stay in the workplace and made sure that their workplace was safe. So we always, we haven't always got it right as a society at large, but when we have gotten it right, it's worked. And so I think we need to understand what bringing things together and stop looking through historical lenses because you can't do that. Like Freya will be forever changed by those myths, but it doesn't mean you have to look at her like that. You can see her for what she was. And now that our history is being reclaimed by authors who are out there researching, you can now reform your vision of her through a more accurate and more historical point of view that it is based on facts. And I think it's a good time for people to kind of do the same thing with all of the books and movies and understand that that was then and this is now. And a lot of those film actresses have big regrets of being in those films and presenting women that way. But they're doing better. And that's all we can do is hope for evolution to change the way we view the world around us and change these genres for the better. Absolutely. So I think that that pretty much sums up what we feel about the femme fatale. <laughs> and hopefully all of you know out there, like this company supports all parties. We are supportive of LGBTQ and supportive of our male counterparts because we all have husbands and love them very much. So mm-hmm. I'm definitely not saying that <laughs> anything negative against men. I just, as my husband says out there, sometimes Uh, being the husband of a feminist is very hard for him but he said you know at least you're not a radical feminist trying to like control my life and I think that that's important it's it's not for us to control anyone (laughs) it's for us to lift them up like we want to be lifted so that he comes with me and holds my hand and says yes her rights for her too Mm -hmm. and it's not being spit on and like 
well, I don't want to be any part of that mess. You don't want that. <laughs> so it, it's, it, there's just space now to restart the clock and maybe form a new way uh, for, for women to be sort of like cemented in literature and film in a more positive way. And with that said, um, we're hoping that you will join us next month because we're actually going to continue this female-centered uh, conversation and talk about women's lit because there are some ups and downsides of that too. Uh, and to, for all of your book needs, please check out our website at www.the3, that's the number three, littlesisters.com, where all February long, you can grab a free download from one of our books. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us on the Nevermore Podcast.